Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole to find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Matt Russell, and we are back with another quarterly review. I joined Eric to talk about all things that happened in the second quarter of 2023. Most of this quarter seemed to focus on regulatory headlines, scrutiny from the SEC, unexpected rulings in the Ripple case. So we dive into what those mean and what it looks like on the horizon. Then we cover some interesting developments like the BlackRock ETF. Eric shares a few applications that get him most excited about blockchain in the future. And we talk about what development is like in the industry as a whole. Please enjoy this short but action-packed conversation with me and Eric. All right, Eric, we're here to talk about the second quarter. We're a few weeks late, but we'll kick off the way we always do with some performance. Bitcoin was up close to 7%, Ethereum up close to 6%. For the year, north of 80% for Bitcoin, which is one hell of a start to the year. But they slightly lagged the market in the second quarter, just very normal in terms of high single-digit returns. Didn't stand out wasn't shocking. When you step back and look at the performance of the asset class specifically, what are your immediate takeaways from 2Q23? My takeaway was when you just look at the numbers and you don't have the headlines that happened, every quarter in crypto now probably adds three to four years to your life of how long it feels. So you had such huge headlines from Wells notices to SEC investigations to just banning of crypto and then this complete turn of events. And so I think the numbers against the actual events that happened during the quarter are pretty impressive. Definitely rallied year to date, but obviously after a hard 2022 performance. And so I would say it's still impressive to me in light of everything that happened. So we can jump into that. Yeah, I think that is the most interesting thing to me is if you look at when we started doing these, which was the first quarter of 2022, and there compared to now, Bitcoin's down about 25%. So it's like, yes, that's down quite a bit. But when you compare it to the bloodbath that took place in the asset class, it's actually shocking outperformance. And it's tough to get a sense of sentiment because you just hear a lot of the backlash about the asset class associated with the events and the bad actors. Yet the price performance, at least to me, from those basically bellwether names actually has been very respectable. So where do you stand on sentiment and maybe just view it in the sense of if we were at a peak at the end of 21, 
when did we hit a bottom if we did and where are we now the only thing more volatile than crypto prices is a sentiment of crypto participants there's two forms of sentiment that i get one is from people who are very deep in crypto and think about this all day and the second is from my trade fire world where people are reading wall street journal headlines and you'd see this in asset classes trading fixed income the journal would say something that was just completely wrong and you're like i know that's not right but this is what the general public is being led to believe and in crypto they run with headlines that are just obviously for clicks and attention but a lot of the stuff is nuanced and detailed and it's an asset class that when people are really interested in they go deep and then it goes the other way right and so I'll start with like the sentiment of the marketplace. It all turned around when the Wells notices were reported that they were going out from the SEC and then the SEC investigations. That was really like, wow, this is like a nuclear strike on the industry. Who are they going out towards? For Binance and Coinbase. Two cases filed back to back. The really only thing bigger, which some people call it the final boss of crypto is the Department of Justice of saying this has gone beyond just financial crimes. You know, these are much bigger penalties. So the Binance case got leaked. I forget to what news outlet, but it got leaked. It was on Twitter. Then someone covered it. And even I think CZ had responded on Twitter, like, I haven't been served anything. The media knew about SEC filing case against Binance, which doesn't feel very good. But in that case, there was both allegations of unregistered securities, which I think we'll get into a lot to, as well as a bunch of other claims about potential moving of money and fraudulent and crossing borders between the US and international. And so the truth is that when you look at the US regulatory standpoint, a lot of exchanges had already cleaved in two with an international and a US branch. And the reason was that there were fears that there were things you couldn't do in the US that you could potentially do internationally mostly revolving around derivative structures like futures, perpetual. So spot seemed okay if you had strong reason to believe that the token wasn't a security and you could offer that in the United States. But the minute you start thinking about leverage or derivatives, you have different thresholds in the US, but you don't have those internationally. So all of these different trading venues had different versions. Basically, people were being told to like VPN, so make it look like your computer's international so that it could go on the international exchange and continue to trade with a lot more freedom to execute. There's all these allegations about moving money and entice people from the US to potentially do this stuff. So that happened. And then a week later, but when the Wells notices came out, we had an interview on Web3 Breakdowns with Dan Matashevsky, who said, when the Wells notice went out, he knew this is the direction to travel. It was a question of when. So really it became timing of why are these cases being filed now? Why are we suddenly accelerating this? It is no secret that the SEC had had its target set on crypto and this notion of what's the security. How big of a surprise was it? I think Binance, we had talked about being in the crosshairs for a while now. With Coinbase, that one feels like at least a little bit from the outsider's perspective, more of an interesting one given it's a publicly traded name in the US and US-based. Was that a bigger surprise or not a surprise? I felt personally, it's just my opinion, that it, it was a bit of an inevitability that we would get here, but that the commission would want to wait as long as they could because this was just going to end up being a very long drawn out legal battle. So the timing of it to me was really a big decision. Clearly, these cases just don't come out of nowhere. They're worked on for months, if not years, preparing. Because when you do an enforcement case, you don't want to lose in the court system when you do this. So in our old world, when you bring a Wells notice, that's usually the precursor to a settlement to admit no wrongdoing. So a Wells notice is basically a warning 
from the SEC that they're upset about something, you violated something. And it used to be like a huge red flag. Bloomberg would flash red, halt trading. I think when like the Wells Fargo did the manipulating accounts, it opened up accounts that didn't exist. A Wells notice went out, stock price drops. Everyone's like, oh God, this isn't good. But typically in traditional finance, after the Wells notice with like an existing company, there's a lot of meetings, I assume. And then as a trader, the headline comes out, firm pays X billion dollars in fees and admits no wrongdoing. And then we're done with that and they implement new controls. So the Wells notice going to lawsuit. I don't know if there was like a negotiation or what happened. This is just speculation and reading the outside. So I think that everyone knew it was coming, but the timing was definitely a surprise. So someone had asked me, and for golf fans, I was more surprised by the Live PGA merger than I was by the SEC cases, but maybe the timing caught people a bit off guard. That makes sense. And yeah, there's certainly things that you see when you're an insider versus an outsider's perspective as they're not as close to it. In the Coinbase case, it happened about a week later. It was not leaked. It went to the company first. The headline was big. Stock was hit by it. And that one seemed a bit cleaner because the international stuff didn't exist. It's all US-based. It was a publicly traded company, had filed with the SEC to go public. So they were very aware of the company and they've been going back and forth on broker deal licenses, on earn. Coinbase at the SEC are very familiar with one another. But the case was a little bit more straightforward where they said that they believe that at least one of the 12 tokens listed was a security. And if it was a security, then they accused Coinbase, I believe, of operating an unregistered exchange, operating an unregistered broker-dealer, and operating an unregistered clearinghouse. And so what they're saying was, if you're trading securities, then you have to go register. All makes sense. And some of this feels notable because it feels like they're deciding the rules after the fact. And not to clear anyone of wrongdoing, but it is a very weird situation where there's clearly no established rules and a lot of these things are being decided either ongoing or after the fact, which is a tricky environment to operate in. I guess just when you think about Coinbase specifically and the sentiment around that name, I just pulled up the stock chart. It's actually performed pretty well. There seems to be some correlation there between it and general market. Where did they stand in terms of sentiment around how they've operated, where they are in terms of market dominance or lack thereof? What do you think about Coinbase in terms of sentiment wise? I think it's a great example to give you how rapidly the sentiment changed on something. This is what I'll probably use in the future, talking to like new analysts, thinking about names and stories. So this case comes out and the basic sentiment is Coinbase cannot exist. So if you're a shareholder, the sentiment is all cash flows of this company are going to pay legal bills because unlike a traditional company, what the SEC was alleging is your business can no longer exist. So not that you did something wrong, it was that we do not want this to exist. And if we win this case, your business no longer exists. So the equity got crushed on the notion that they have no future, that crypto in the United States is done, that this is going to get mired in a lawsuit for two to three years. And as the US representative of the industry, you're toast. So don't expect any future cash flows coming to shareholders. And then as soon as this other case, XRP, comes up, the sentiment goes completely the other way, where you went from, okay, this company is just going to slowly die and eventually have to file for bankruptcy to they have monopoly status in the United States to do the thing that they wanted to do their whole. The sentiment shift on that company has been wild. Enlighten me on the XRP thing. I knew very little about it, but it makes sense to go there now. So XRP is a token that was issued many years ago and it famously, the SEC sued them and XRP started to fight back. And so there's been ongoing lawsuits. Is it comparable to like a Bitcoin? It's like an Ethereum. It's its own network. 
the real issue of contention isn't what it does technically. Actually, I haven't seen anyone talk about that anymore. It's more about how it was financed. That's the real core issue, that they had a CEO and a CFO, they had a deck and a roadshow, and they pitched investors. And what was interesting was there was two sides of how they raised money, and then three of how they spent it. And so they raised money from institutional investors, and they sold them tokens. Their mind was, well, these aren't securities, so we're not going to register. Now, what we do today or what people do today is when they issue tokens to institutions, venture capitals or corporations or large investors, they file a reg D like a venture capital company would, which says, we believe this is a security, but we don't have to register because we're only selling it to this specific type of investor. If we ever open that aperture of who do we sell to like retail, then we have to change our registration. That's like the process of going public. Like you've issued securities when you sold them to venture back to investors, but you file specific forms to let the SEC know what you're doing. And you have to meet certain requirements to make sure that that's okay. XRP never did that step. So they just sold the tokens under the auspices of, well, they're not securities, so we can do this. So the SEC brought a lawsuit against them saying they had issued unregistered securities. They went back and forth. I think it was five years when the first lawsuit started. And it had just been going on forever. The token had been delisted from different exchanges. So it was harder to trade it. It lacked liquidity. And basically they were just fighting. And there was people that really supported it and were standing up to the SEC. There's people that didn't like the people who started XRP. So there's a lot of mixed feelings in crypto about XRP. And as the cases got brought, you get these tidbits of stuff. So there's these famous Hinman emails that they sued for. Hinman was a guy who gave a speech about securities and saying that something could be issued as a security, but then if it reached a decentralized enough point, it could become a non-security. So he was trying to push the SEC. Is this guy a regulator? Yeah, commissioner at the SEC. But when a commissioner speaks, not like the Federal Reserve, but kind of like their speech gets circulated amongst participants, they talk about it. There's clearly different sides of what are you going to say publicly and what are you not going to say? Because back then, Jay Clayton pointed to the Hinman speech. It was a thing. I guess it becomes a doctrine once everyone talks about it, but it's a speech at first. And XRP had sued for the emails that back and forth amongst the staff. XRP won this in a case to actually get them released. And if you read the Hinman emails, what you saw was an SEC that was struggling with how to debate this and how to talk about it and basically understood there was a lot of confusion in the market and that this wasn't black and white. And some people thought about it this way and other people thought about it that way. So as the extra piece came out, just more and more pieces came out of what was going on. And what was much more surprising was the ruling. A summary judgment came out that said, the institutional sales were part of a transaction that was a security, and the retail sales were not. I'm confused as to why that would be the case. Okay. Yeah. So the headlines that came up, Matt Levine wrote a piece. And I think for a lot of people, it became very confusing. Well, this is a security and a non-security. How can it be both things at the same time? And the issue is that the token itself, that is actually clear. It is not a security, which is the example that the orange and the Howey test which is about securities law and orange groves, that the orange itself isn't the security. It's the promise to do something, the investment contract, the right for future profits, the fact that I'm going to do work for you, that makes it a security. And so what the judge came up with was that when the XRP team was selling institutions, they were verbally creating a contract over promising a future profit and future returns on their actions to sell the token, that in that action, it was a security transaction. So the transaction was, the thing that they were giving them turned it into a security. And then when retail bought it, retail was programmatically buying it on an exchange and didn't know where the money was going. And therefore, it's not a security. Now, 
What's strange is your first thing you think about is Tesla issues shares and Goldman Sachs buys it on the IPO. Well, when me and you buy it, we're still transacting in a security. And the reason that that's true is because an equity by definition is a security. So they can't change shape in that way. And so what's weird about this is you do end up with a very gray area that institutional raised capital, you would have had to file something. And they didn't file, when I mentioned a startup raising money, would file like a Reg D notifying the SEC that they don't have to register because they're selling it. They didn't do that part. So technically, my reading of it is there is an odd but potential path where someone could do something and find ways to raise money without it being deemed security. Now, there's a whole separate question of like, I'm not a lawyer, and would someone really do this? And you can't look at this as president. The case will be appealed. But what it causes is this wedge. And back to the Coinbase thing of how we got to the XRP, Coinbase then went and listed XRP. The thing went up 95%. So if you just talk about when I talk about trading and opportunity, I'm sitting at my desk. The thing moves 20%. I talked to someone, I'm like, what happened? I'm like, oh, the headline's out. And the thing ran another 60% after that. It's not like a Bloomberg headline where there's like a stop trading. It is a slow digestion of information. So anyways, you ended up in this state where now people celebrated, even the people that probably hated XRP, there was a huge win in a lot of people's eyes for crypto. It felt like more of a loss for the SEC. And this is the problem. When you go down this enforcement path and you let the courts decide, The courts are just going to be facts and circumstances, judge by judge, case by case, lawyer by lawyer. That case in front of a different judge gets different lawyers, gets a whole different outcome. But then if there's nothing else, then people start pointing to that as this is the answer. So what I tell people is, oh, you don't want the courts to decide this. I'm like, how many times have we said the word Howie? That's a Supreme Court case we're talking about. And if you look at the way the Supreme Court's ruled, again, I'm not a lawyer, but I'm a betting man. If this thing goes to the Supreme Court, I question if the SEC will be stripped even further of power and oversight because eventually it's going to get to a more conservative court, which has so far pushed against overreach of regulators, whether it was the EPA or the Chevron case, where they're saying we've gone too far. And I think a conservative court is going to be like, point me to the law that says this is what you say it is. And if you don't have that, you need Congress to add legislation, which is why I think right now people are interested to see, will this get something going? And we've seen a little bit of movement in Congress that they're aware of this and they know that this could end up in a place that they don't want it. Was the courts ruling that what was sold to the institutional investors was actually something different than what was sold to the retail investors? The decision is that when you look at the Howey test, the judge believes that the institutional investors had a right to believe they were sold a security. The judge is saying that the way the institutions were pitched the asset and their knowledge base, they're protected by securities law. But the retail client who didn't know what they were giving their money towards is not protected by securities law. Now, I know that makes people happy because they don't want tokens to be securities, so they continue trading them. And it's this ethos of just do as you want. But it doesn't seem to me like that structure will last forever. This seems like a temporary place, but pushes us in the right direction that you're going to need some sort of new legislation and or regulation that handles non-security tokenization of things. And where do we stand on that coming? Is that just the ongoing, yeah, we'll have major decisions, but they probably won't get decided on for another couple of years? Or? Well, this is why it was such a wild quarter. When the Coinbase news came out, the thought was that the SEC was in pole position. It was going to be hard to do this because what the SEC was saying was, we only need to prove that one of these 12 tokens is a security. And if we do, 
we can get you on these cases. And what I learned was that the actual token creators can't even defend themselves in court because the case wasn't brought against them. The case was brought against Coinbase. So Coinbase has to explain why they're not. And then a judge has to agree of are they, are they not? So I think under the Coinbase case, people thought it was two to three years away from a ruling. And then that ruling would set the president. But then literally a month later, at the same quarter, all of a sudden the XRP case happens. And all of a sudden, everyone's like, oh, I guess we have our answer. And they didn't do what Judge Torres said. They issued Reg D's, I believe. They did their institutional sales appropriately. They did retail sales. So maybe these aren't tokens, which gets back to the circle of how those two matter of what people are looking to Coinbase on. So there's price action, volatility, still a lot changing hands. When I think about who remains in this space super active, you have Dan, who still very active in the space. I compare it to something like the thing right now, right? AI. It's all over. Can't get enough AI. And all you hear is people moving to build an AI. So when you just think about the existing space, those that are trading, creating markets, creating liquidity, those that are building, how do you separate those two? Are there still a lot of people building new things, building projects? It sounds like the actual capital markets still remain active, but it could be a lot around trading things. What does that look like right now? Yeah, that's definitely shifted massively where a lot of that venture capital looking for that 10,000x moved from crypto right to AI. And AI has a lot of promise and people are excited about that. It definitely decreases the builders, the new founders coming in. There's two sides to it. One is, yes, there's less capital, but there's far less opportunities to back. And there's some people that are dedicated to the space that want to put money in and they don't have as many choices to pick from. But the good news is most of those people that are still in there are pretty legitimate. The downside is, and this is true with all VC funding, there's a lot of zombie overcapitalized companies that probably aren't going to be able to ever meet their prior round valuations. So you have that trade-off of down rounds. But on the builder side, there's definitely people that are continuing to build that are committed to it. I don't love when it was hype and everyone was there and the headlines were so big. And I kind of love that AI has all the attention. I like being out of the light a little bit and being able to focus on something, which is that I've yet to meet a fixed income person who doesn't understand blockchain within five minutes of explaining it to them. And anyone who's traded like one of my things are like real world assets and just the guts and the mess of trading. People talk about use cases and there's all sorts of things that it could be used for, but it's a slow adoption thing. It's not like everyone's going to take it on tomorrow, but there's so much money and so much wealth created and destroyed, it just attracts a ton of people. And the tough part is, I don't see that stopping. I see waves of cycles where if all of a sudden there's more tokens that are traded and these things start to go back up, you'll get the same thing. Like the joke that someone's on Twitter, like, can you believe all the stuff we bought? I think Corey was like, oh, we'd buy it all again. And I'm like, you will. Like, there's just no doubt in my mind that you're going to go through a constant cycles of booms and busts and booms and busts. And then over time, that money is hopefully finding its area to places that people that are actually going to execute and build things throughout those cycles. And every time you do that, there just seems to be a little bit, the volume of participants is higher. Now that when you're in a bear, which I still think we are, you don't have that many new people coming. The NFT boom, that was very easy for people to get interested. And it was a fun, collectible trading thing and money was going up and then it busted and people were like, oh, I'm on to the next thing. But whatever the next thing is, it will definitely attract people. People will start doing it and you'll be back up to higher prices. Jeremiah Lowen had a great comment. Blockchain solves so many problems that you barely hear about them anymore. That one, yeah, actually got me. The point on fixed income investors being attracted to this asset class, it's something we still see. There were two guests on Invest Like the Best referencing blockchain, crypto, 
on their episodes and they're still very much involved in that market, the credit market. It's something I've commented to you. You've commented back to me. A lot of the people that you have on that have come from institutional credit trading backgrounds that are now in that space. And that funnel continues to exist where it's still moving in that specific direction. Is that where you think most things will get built as well? Because there's obviously the trading side of things, which I think everyone has that attraction. But do you think that there's where the building is happening? Is it largely in that, I guess we can call broader fintech space or financial related use cases? Or is it beyond that? And that's just like a limited trad fi bubble that I'm viewing things through. Yeah. So there's multiple areas where people want to build things. Anytime you're trying to prove who owns something, where that information came from, like how do we have a central truth that we don't have to pay a third party to tell us who, that people will raise it as an idea. I think there's categories, definitely the base money idea that not so much in the United States, but around the globe, there's a desire for easy flowing of money and concern that your bank isn't stable or your country isn't stable. And yeah, Bitcoin might be great, but you might want to use some form of stable coin like Tether or USDC to transact. And that crypto has a much more global appeal. I think this is also the other big headline, I can't believe I haven't mentioned this, a BlackRock ETF, but Larry Fink from... I don't know what he called it. He had a negative headline, but the new one is like, it's a global asset and it's not going away. The first thing is from a globalization of a currency that people can point to and are willing to quote on a regular basis. That to me is like the biggest possibility of crypto when it was first pitched to me. It was never going to become the reserve currency, but if it's enough to just be a currency, a listed currency that people have to talk about, I don't know of a bigger use case than becoming a currency. To say you're a currency that's quoted with the euro, the yen, and the dollar means you're a sovereign nation. It's a big deal. It's not a joke thing to like get to that level. And that alone has an entire discipline of what currencies, transactions, banking. So what you're doing there is trying to rebuild the world of traditional finance. So you can call that decentralized finance. DeFi is usually a little bit more specific. A notion that could an individual exist without a US bank account or a bank account that wasn't on SWIFT specifically, meaning the United States could never shut down that form of funding. Maybe we'll get there. That's probably the biggest, and that was the original thing. The second one we're talking about is TradFi. And the reason why there's this fixed income crossover is, I don't know, there's probably 5,000 equity tickers in the world, something like thousands. On the US exchange, there's 8,000 ticker symbols, but it's only 5,800 companies. So let's call it tens of thousands. And bonds, there's multiple millions and hundreds of thousands created every like year. So the problem is you just have this massively archaic data mess of keeping track. And by the way, all of these things, every one of these QCIPs has hundreds of pages of documentation. It's a mess. Now, when you turn on CNBC, you talk about buying, should we buy Tesla? Should we buy NVIDIA? What's AI going to do? And then they'll quote the 10-year yield. Not knowing there's several hundred of those. It's a gnarly place to reconcile. That leads to a very high cost and friction of trading and execution. And so if you're a fixed income person, you're constantly like, there's got to be a better way to do this if you've ever built something in the system. If you just sit on top of the system and trade, you're like, this is great. And we make money off of all these fees. But if you try to build something or change something, you quickly start to understand how gnarly it is for the state of New York to issue bonds. And for me, Eric, in Massachusetts to buy them, record them, keep track of the interest payments, everything is just a mess. And there's so many people helping that process along that blockchain is just enticing. I might over-index on it because I'm obviously it's my background, but it's something that I'm super interested in. Then there's the gaming, there's the media, marketing, there's other people that are doing stuff. 
And so all of it is just, is there a reason why you'd want to own something and not have it owned by a third party? So even with the threads thing, the notion that they're exploring decentralization of your threads and your followers, the idea is that if you create an audience, who owns that? So it's usually the thing that gets me most interested is who owns the thing and who records the ownership. It sounds very simple, but who owns the sword in the video game? Who owns your followers on Instagram? Who owns the assets that you said you let money on? And what blockchain does is makes a much more frictionless system to potentially house those type of things. And that's where most people are building. Going all the way back to the first point, it is or it feels very noteworthy to have someone like Larry Fink and BlackRock making that type of commentary. And I was just trying to rack my brain in terms of, have there been instances where there's been this type of blessing for something, but then it's evaporated and completely gone away? The thing that's most comparable, and it brings you back to the earliest days of it, is something like gold, where it's just a funny thing to talk about gold. And it's this trading instrument. But in reality, it's so disconnected from intrinsic value. It's still around. It feels archaic in some ways. To me, I almost feel like in the worst case floor scenario, you get something that just is a bellwether in a similar way to how gold is a bellwether for something. And it's more symbolic than anything. Yeah, I think the big difference, it's definitely its biggest competitor for gold is Bitcoin as a digital gold substitute in a portfolio. But Bitcoin specifically, I think, becomes the systemic break insurance. So I think people had mislabeled it as an inflation hedge or it did something specific. The truth is that Bitcoin probably has more of a desire in a diversified portfolio when people are just concerned that if things go wrong, this is going to outperform. I think that that's what Bitcoin's future could be is that type of asset, that it's considered a hedge in a portfolio of when everything goes wrong. I mean, right now, what you want is long US treasuries. Like That's the best performer. When stuff really goes higher, higher, that's the asset that usually does the best. And people hold gold as this blood of the streets, the Rothschilds hold gold. It's the store of value that governments can't inflate over time. I think Bitcoin as a global asset starts to fit that portfolio picture and also has the possibility, like I said, of being used in some fashion in less stable nations and replacing a more basket of currencies. I remember, I think it was Soros who was originally proposing that we shouldn't be indexed off the dollar. It gives far too much centralized power and concern. It really should be a global basket of currencies that is less volatile. So that in general, put them all together. And there's this notion of like a global basket, a super currency. To me, it's possible that we get there. In the current time, it's a risk asset. When stuff goes really well and risks on, it does well. And when risk sells off, it doesn't. But I'm curious to see if it can become more than that as it's more potentially widely adopted. And it's hard for me not to think that if the BlackRock ETF gets approved, that it's not going to become more widely held, even if it's just a small insurance policy of not being wrong for people. Yeah, yeah it's just an indexing effect in some ways too, which is particularly interesting. Any closing commentary, thoughts, ideas, observations from the second quarter of 2023? I think at the end of all of these, we've said, I hope the next quarter is going to be quiet. And it's always been wildly surprising. This has been a ton of fun following the asset class, participating in it, watching it move. There's no Netflix drama that holds itself up to like the crypto roller coaster. It feels separated from the humans. It felt like there was a bad actor person involved in all the previous quarters. And now we're just getting into regulators and corporations, which feels a little bit different. To me, it almost is a 
more institutional type of problem to have versus just the sleaze balls. Yeah, there's a meme like don't become the main actor in crypto Twitter. Whoever the main actor is ends up in jail or bankrupt or disappears. So like don't become the main actor. SPF was the main actor and he's gone. Who is the main actor? Currently CZ at Binance. I mean, that's definitely the most heats on him. He has to answer the most. And it's also because Binance is so wildly successful. I think it has something like 70% market share. He already is one of the most powerful, if not always the most powerful person in crypto. The SPF thing was the up and comer versus CZ's dominance. So that's probably the thing that people have most of their focus on to see like what happens with that. That's like the global crypto market, which matters quite a bit. But really, I think that so much more eyes are on like the BlackRock ETF to me. And again, maybe this is the trade five background, but to me, I would say one categorization of people is people who think crypto is going to stay over here and people that think trade size is stay over here. And we're just going to have two separate shows. But eventually, I do believe that they're going to merge together and it's just going to be an asset class that people talk about. And along those lines, the BlackRock ETF is such a big moment for people. I have a high probability. Most people say it's like 50-50. I'm at 80%. It gets approved. BlackRock has made too compelling of a case for the SEC to try to say no to them for something that you're going to let people buy a three times levered biotech pharma index, long, short, right options for a day. We've gone beyond the notion in the United States that we're thinking about the prudent man and that equities are risky and bonds are for like the reasonable person. We're straight up. And when I was 12 years old, and I think I got my first stock, I asked my father, I said, this is just a casino. And then I went to work. I worked my butt off to be in it. And there's still a sign that's a lot of finance is just a casino with people making bets. And some people have better information and have better EVs than you do. But a lot of people are just betting. We've debated this in the past of gambling versus speculation versus investing. Accelerating the movement of capital lowers the cost of capital, which allows for innovation and investment and development. Cannot speak negatively about these beautiful capital markets that we've created. No, I love them. They're best in the world. I would not go to any other one. But along those lines, I just think it becomes much harder to continue to reject the Bitcoin ETF when all the regulators have said it's not a security. So that's not the issue. It just keeps knocking down issues. And then you have this other effect of like, okay, now that it's an ETF and it is more widely accepted, it's hard not to see that as a very positive tailwind for the asset class. All right. Fairly bullish commentary coming out of this. Optimist. I love it. Always the optimist. Always. Well, it's been a pleasure. We will record this closer to the end of the quarter next go around. And thanks for doing it. To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S.com. 